0: Welcome to episode 33 of History of the Marine Corps, the Yankee Racehorse. Our last episode followed the USS Constellation around, and we discussed her first major battle during the Quasi-War. We went over some of the weapons used by naval forces at the time, and America's reaction to Constellation's victory. This episode covers a lot. We start off by discussing the death of George Washington. Washington was loved throughout the United States, and the news of his death sent the country into deep mourning. We also discussed another superb performance by the Constellation. Follow the Marines as they make their way to their new home in Washington, D.C., and take a look at a young Marine Corps band. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. On December 12, 1799, George Washington was making the rounds on his farm. It was a cold and snowy day, but he ignored the weather and continued to inspect his farm for five hours. He described the day in his diary. About one o'clock it began to snow, soon after to hail, and then turned to a settled cold rain. Washington found guests waiting when he returned home for dinner. He was already late and didn't want to be a bad host, so he decided to stay in his wet clothes and sat down to eat. Washington woke up the next morning with a sore throat. It was snowing harder, but he went out anyways and trekked through three inches of snow to mark trees. The trees would be cut down to improve his landscape and build a gravel path to a future fish pond. That evening, Washington's sore throat continued to get worse. His voice was hoarse, and he had some chest congestion. Even with these symptoms, he was in a relatively good mood. His personal secretary, Tobias Lear, offered Washington some medicine, but Washington responded, quote, You know, I never take anything for a cold. He went to bed early, but awoke in the middle of the night with a raw and inflamed throat. Washington was having a hard time breathing, and Martha, his wife, was worried about his health. She tried to get help but Washington was concerned she might catch a cold if she went outside and asked her to wait until morning. She did, but while they waited, Washington's throat would continue to get worse. In the morning, he drank a concoction of molasses, vinegar, and butter to help soothe his throat, but he almost threw up when he tried to swallow. By this time, he was in bad shape. Washington was having a hard time breathing, and he was hardly able to speak clearly. He was dying. A few doctors were there to help Washington with his throat, and they tried multiple different solutions as Washington laid in his bed. The doctors bled him out, they tried enemas, and they even applied a mixture of dried beetles to draw the inflammation to the surface. At one time, Washington attempted to gargle with sage tea and vinegar, and he almost suffocated in the process. Estimates say that Washington lost five pints of blood during these procedures. None of the methods helped Washington with his breathing. One of the doctors recommended a tracheotomy. But this was a highly experimental process at the time, and the other doctors in the room argued against it. Leading up to his death, Washington said, Doctor, I die hard, but I am not afraid to go. He didn't scream, complain, or even get emotional. George Washington, the first president of the United States and accomplished military general, and one of the founding fathers of America died late in the evening on December 17, 1799 at the age of 67. Washington was one of the most beloved people in America at the time, and the word of his death spread throughout the country like wildfire. The United States went into deep mourning, and many towns throughout the country held their own services honoring Washington's life. Church bells rang in every city, and all businesses closed their doors. President Adams wore black clothing to show his grief for Washington's death. Government officials followed his lead, and dressed in black as well. Congress draped their halls in black, military officers wore crepes on their left arm, and naval vessels flew their colors at half-mast. The news of Washington's death reached Europe, and the British Navy paid tribute to the memory of the general who won America's independence. In France, despite the controversy with the United States, Napoleon ordered 10 days of mourning. After his death, George Washington's will was made public. In his will, he decided to free all of his slaves. Despite being a slave owner himself, and owning slaves for over 55 years, he often spoke about ending the practice. He hoped that other slave masters would follow his lead, but unfortunately, that didn't happen. The United States mourned into the new century, and the Marines departed for the Caribbean. America had two new frigates, the United States and the Constellation. Truxton was the captain for the Constellation, and he just engaged with the French frigate uh, Insurgente and dominated the battle. The French vessel was reputed to be the fastest ship in the French Navy, so this was a significant accomplishment for America. The Constellation received a hero's welcome when she arrived in Virginia and the citizens celebrated the capture of the French frigate. As we discussed during our last episode, President Adams approved legislation that authorized the strength of the Marine Corps as one major, 40 other officers, and 1,044 enlisted. However, this wasn't the official strength of the Marine Corps. By mid-1799, the number of active-duty Marines was 368. 25 officers, and 343 enlisted. Even though the size was small, Marines participated in the sinking and capture of 24 French vessels that year. Ships were captured off the coast of what is now the Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico. Quite a few ships were captured near the island of Guadeloupe. In January, the Marines and sailors on the constellation arrived in St. Kitts. Captain Truxton received intelligence that two French warships were off the coast of Guadeloupe. Reports claimed the ships were a 44-gun frigate and a 28-gun corvette. Truxton had a pretty straightforward plan. He wanted to take the Constellation into the open sea and give them a fair challenge to come out and fight. He was cocky about his idea too. He ordered the ship's carpenter to empty everything out of the lowest deck of the Constellation. A crew member said that Truxton ordered them to not leave a single rope yarn in the way, as in one week, he was determined to have 500 prisoners on board. On January 30th, Truxton commenced his plan. He sailed for Guadeloupe, and when he arrived, saw a large ship on the horizon. He watched the ship for a while, and reported that she was a heavy French frigate, mounting at least 54 guns. Truxton was spot on with his observation and the ship in the distance turned out to be La Vengeance, a 54-gun frigate. The French ship had 436 people on board, 36 of them being American prisoners. She also carried a lot of money and was in the process of delivering it to France. French Captain Pitot didn't want to engage the Americans, so he prepared his ship for an escape. Truxton immediately began to give chase. The Constellation slowly closed the distance to the French. No one on the Constellation left their battle stations for 12 straight hours. By this time, it was dark, but the Constellation managed to come within shouting distance of the French frigate. I tried to figure out how far shouting distance actually is, but I couldn't find a reputable naval source that gives a measurement. The best resource I found is from Guinness World Records, which states the normal, intelligible outdoor range of the male human voice in still air is 590 feet 6.5 inches or for those on the metric system, 180 meters. If anyone has another source, please feel free to send it my way. At around 20-hundred, Truxton hollered at the French captain to surrender his ship. The French responded by firing a cannon at the Constellation. That was the extent of Truxton's negotiations. The American frigate didn't retaliate immediately. Truxton knew the power and speed of the Constellation, and wanted to get into the right position before firing. He ordered his commanders to wait. He didn't want to waste the gunpowder and ammunition and ordered them to take aim and fire directly into the hull of the enemy. It was dark, and both captains could only see a faint silhouette of their target. The French frigate fired the first shot. She moved to the port side of the Constellation and fired a broadside into the riggings. The Constellation turned into the wind and ran parallel to the enemy. She was around 300 yards away when Truxton ordered her crew to fire. The shot was perfect, and the Constellation fired a double-shotted broadside into the frigate. Both ships started the reloading process, but continued on their course. There was very little maneuver warfare going on in this battle, and both ships continued to run alongside each other, exchanging shots. The French frigate outsized the Constellation and carried heavier weapons. The total mounted weight on her broadside was 559 pounds compared to the Constellation's 372 pounds. The French's primary target was the American's rigging and due to her size and power destroyed the Constellation's sails. While American sailors were attempting to repair or replace the sails, La Vengeance tried to escape, but she was unsuccessful and the Americans eventually caught up to the French and continued to fight. By this time, the ships were close enough to board, and both captains ordered boarding parties. The US Marines instantly stopped the French. Captain Peto stated that the small arms fire of the American Marines were so accurate that the French crew fell back and, quote, damned the cause. An hour later, the sight of the French frigate's deck was similar to her sister's deck we discussed last episode. The Marines' shots were accurate, and the French frigate's decks were covered in blood from the dead and wounded. Five hours after the first shot was fired, the French frigate stood still. Truxton assumed the silence meant the French surrendered, but he couldn't approach the ship, since the riggings of the Constellation sustained a lot of damage. He ordered his crew to repair the mast, but as the crew attempted to fix the damage, the main mast broke and fell into the ocean. Only one of the top men survived. The rest drowned. Among them was a 13 year old midshipman, James Jarvis. Unfortunately for a Marine below, the topmast fell directly on him and he was stuck under it for many hours. By this time, the Vengeance managed to sail away as the Constellation cleaned up the damage from the battle. Americans suffered 15 deaths and 25 wounded during this fight. At the time, The fate of the French ship wasn't known. Truxton assumed she was probably sinking and making her way towards Curacao. He was right again, and that is exactly the location and condition of the French frigate. It's estimated the Constellation fired over 200 shots into the Vengeance's hull. She was taking on water so fast that civilian passengers on the ship were ordered to grab a bucket and help empty the water from the sinking ship. Captain Piteau didn't even bother to port the ship at the harbor. He intentionally ran her aground to prevent her from sinking. Local historical accounts say that every inch of that ship was covered in holes. The damage was so extensive that the 26 American prisoners on board had to help patch the ship. Captain Piteau appreciated the Americans' help and he let them go free. Despite having a better armed ship, The French were in far worse shape. Captain Pitot reported 28 dead and 40 wounded in the battle, but some estimates in Curaçao puts the casualty rate at around 160. If these estimates are correct, that is four times as many as the Constellation. Our last episode discussed the importance of the rate of fire, and this battle backs up that strategy. The French fired 742 rounds, while the Constellation, despite having fewer cannons, fired 1,229. The Constellation's speed and power surprised the French, and it inspired them to nickname her the Yankee Racehorse. She was well-respected, not only in the United States, but in France as well. Back in the States, Commandant Burroughs needed a home for his Marines. The first headquarters of the Marine Corps was near the center of Philadelphia, which was the capital of the United States at the time. Marines in Philadelphia didn't have a permanent building. They lived in tents, and the staff was pretty limited as well. It consisted of Burroughs, a couple of clerks, and a few Marines awaiting orders. Burroughs believed that officers should be in the field and not by his side in Philadelphia. His example of minimizing overhead set a precedent for future commandants. There's a value in streamlining these needs. In 2001, General James Mattis based his staffing philosophy on this belief. General Mattis actually got the idea from an Iraqi major during the Gulf War, but the technique was similar. Mattis called it skip echelon. He eliminated redundancy at various levels of the command. For example, not every command needs a chaplain, a public affairs officer, or medical personnel. If these roles were needed, Mattis would simply move up or down the chain of command and find the resources there. Mattis eliminated the surgeon, the staff judge advocate, chaplain, and sergeant major from his staff. Major Burroughs settled on a pretty slim staff. It consisted of Captain George Memminger, who was the adjutant, 2nd Lieutenant Thomas Wharton, the quartermaster, and 2nd Lieutenant James Thompson, the paymaster. Here's a fun fact. Thomas later married Sarah Burroughs, who was the daughter of the Commandant. At the time, the Commandant had complete authority over the Corps. This meant that Burroughs controlled what the Marine Corps did, not the Secretary of the Navy. Burroughs was extremely protective of the Corps and his Marines. In his eyes, the Marines came first. He was a very loyal and patriotic man, but he said to the Secretary of the Navy that he would complain if the President of the United States were to interfere with the details of the Marine Corps. However, Army rules and regulations governed the trials of Marine officers by a general court-martial. These two jurisdictions could sometimes be confusing, but it also had its perks. For example, flogging was still practiced in the Navy, but it was abolished in the Corps for Marines serving on land since it was outlawed in the Army. However, the Marines on ship would still follow Navy regulations, but they were still kind of considered outsiders, and because of this, they would get picked on. For example, there was a fun tradition where sailors would throw Marines' knapsacks overboard when the ship was cleared for action. This custom eventually ended when storerooms for clothing and equipment were assigned to Marines. In March, The Marines headed to Washington, D.C. and served as the first guard force for the Washington Navy Yard. The Marine barracks were officially established on March 31, 1801, after Commandant William Ward Burroughs and the President of the United States rode horses around Washington, D.C. to find a suitable place for the Marine barracks. The President only had two requirements for Burroughs. The barracks had to be close enough to the Navy Yard and within easy marching distance of the Capitol. They purchased a plot of land for $6,247.18 and Burroughs received an additional $20,000 to build a barracks for his Marines. The actual construction of the original barracks was completed by Marines. Burroughs, being the superb leader that he is, ordered the Marine barracks built before the Commandant's house. It was, and the Marines were able to move in by 1804. The Commandant's House was completed in 1806, but unfortunately, Burroughs resigned for health issues and died in 1805. He never saw the finished house. The Marine Corps Act of 1798 not only established the Corps, but also authorized a drum major, a fife major, and 32 drum and fifes. This group was the start of the Marine Corps Band. When Burroughs moved the Marines to D.C., the Marine Corps Band came with him. As soon as they arrived, they made an impact. President Adams invited the Marine band to play at the White House on New Year's Day. John Adams has been called the father of the Marine Corps. He believed in the Marines and urged the use of Marines during the American Revolution. In a previous episode, called John Adams Fights Alongside Marines, we cover the battle where Adams fought as a Marine on board the Boston. As he ended his presidency, Adams invited the Marine Band to play. The Marine Band played with an ensemble that had oboes, clarinets, French horns, and bassoons. Adams had always supported the Marines, and I think the symbolism of the Marines performing during the end of his presidency is perfect. On March 4th, Thomas Jefferson would become the third president of the United States, and the Marine Band would perform at his inauguration. This time, other Marines would march beside the orchestra, these Marines evolved to what we know today as the Silent Drill Platoon. The National Intelligencer Newspaper was one of the nation's leading Whig newspapers. They wrote an article that stated, Sometime after the company had assembled, Colonel Burroughs, at the head of the Marine Corps, saluted the President, while the band of music played with great precision. The Marines went through the usual maneuvers in a masterly manner and fired 16 rounds the relationship the Marine Band had with our early presidents gave them the nickname, the President's Own. Next week, we'll look at the Marines' only amphibious landing during the Quasi-War. We'll also close out Marine involvement at sea as the war comes to an end. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll take a look at an amphibious landing conducted by the Marines during the Quasi-War. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecore.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.